But I feel this on my heart. I feel like somebody needs to hear this today. And I, I pray. Now, last week, last week it took me a little bit of time to get to where I wanted to go. And someone came up and complimented the message, and I appreciate that. But I told him, I said, it seemed like I had a hard time getting the plane off the runway. But I'm just going to tell you the way I'm feeling today. This is probably not going to be a plane. It's going to be more like a bus. And uh, so don't, don't expect too much revving, but I'll do the best I can. Praise God. Hallelujah. I've got one verse of scripture I want to read as a text this morning. Just one verse. It's a verse that most likely most of you can quote. Um, but I really feel this today. Luke chapter 17 and verse 32. Luke 17 verse 32. Praise God. Amen. Luke 17 verse 32 says very simply, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Amen. Not quite the shortest verse in the Bible, but very, very close. Amen. Remember Lot's wife. And I want to, I want to teach this morning preach, however it all comes out, uh, the title you may not see the connection between my title and my text, but give me a little time to get there this morning, and uh, I think you'll understand in just a little while. I will say this, uh, it is important that especially our guests, those that may be listening online that are not members, that are not familiar with the Truth Church. I've taught this church that for every passage of Scripture, there's only one interpretation, but there are many applications. And that's what I'm going to be doing today is not interpreting the Scripture, but applying the Scripture. And there is a difference, all right? Is everybody with me? I'm going to be making an application from this passage here this morning, and I want the Lord to help us. I want the Lord to help us. Amen. My... My thought today, my title today is paralyzed by the past. Paralyzed by the past. Would you lay your Bibles down, lift your hands, lift your voices. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us today. We need to hear the voice of God in this place. Let's everybody talk to the Lord right now, Jesus. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, let's worship the Lord together. Everybody, let's worship God. Let's worship God. 
Hallelujah. Praise God, praise God, praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. It just dawned on me also. Um, part of the reason that things look so empty is not just because of so many that are out sick, but we just started last week sending our Sunday school department directly to Sunday school at 10 o'clock in the morning. So our teachers are down there, the children are down there, and that does make a difference. So let's forget about all of that here this morning and let's see what the Lord will do for us, all right? Are you ready? Are you ready for the word of the Lord this morning? Will you help me? Will, will, you, will you get behind your pastor and, and help me today? Would you put the energy in it that I don't have to put in it? Amen. I'm going to give it my best, but I still need your help. I think that most, if not all of us, are familiar with the story of God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that is making a big assumption because in today's society it's not really a popular text. It's not, it's not a popular passage for folks to deal with. Uh, it's not politically correct, you understand, to talk about God judging people uh, to regardless of what they're involved in. To talk about God judging people is, is something that many, many churches just don't want to deal with. They, they want to paint a picture of a God who really doesn't care how you live, what you do, what you say, where you go. Uh, he, he, this God doesn't care about any of that. You make a simple profession of faith and you're saved. You don't have to change one thing. That, that's, that's the the kind of God that is painted to the world today, and yet that's not at all the God of the Bible. One thing we have to understand when we go back and read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we've got to remember what the Lord declared in the book of Malachi when he said, I am the Lord, I change not. Amen. He was not one kind of God in the Old Testament and another kind of God in the New. He's the same. Amen. Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change, my friend. He is the same. Amen. Regardless and, and I want to tell you, I want to tell you that anything God's ever hated, he still hates today. That, that's a part of his nature. It's a part of his holiness. Amen. And I've talked about this before, but the preeminent characteristic of the God of heaven is his holiness. It is his preeminent characteristic above everything else. Now the world has twisted it to make love his preeminent characteristic. But I submit to you that holiness is preeminent over his love. If it wasn't, then he would just save everybody regardless. There would never have been a plan of redemption. If love was all that was necessary, he would have just said, it doesn't matter that man sinned. It doesn't matter what's going on. I'm just gonna save everybody. That's what love alone would do. But his holiness supersedes his love. And because he is a holy God, he said, I still love you. I still want to save you. But I got to do something about the way you've been living. I got to change your nature. I've got to change your characteristics. That's why we have to be born again. 
first birth brought us into a sinful nature. And the second birth has got to take us into a spiritual nature. We need the nature of God. Amen. Praise God. And so when we read of how God hated homosexuality, he still hates it today. He still hates it today. Now, I'm going to tell you, if they'll repent, God will save them. And let me tell you this. We can get off on homosexuality, but adultery is also sin. Fornication is also sin. Well, hallelujah. God, God hates all of that. You understand? God's not pleased with any of it. But Sodom had grown so wicked, not just because of their homosexuality. In fact, you can read in Ezekiel, there were many, many things that were wrong in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God lists them in the book of Ezekiel. He tells us what they were. But it had become such a wicked place that God determined he was going to destroy it. Amen. And God had already gone down to visit with Abram and tell him, you're going to have a son. Amen. You are going to bring forth a child and it was at that time that Sarah had laughed and 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 this is the this is the time when God was talking to Abram but the Bible says that there were also two angels there and that those two angels left that meeting and went on to Sodom but God lingered behind and he said I cannot hide this thing from Abram that I am about to do and so God let Abram know that he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and it was then that Abram began to plead with the Lord he began to intercede amen I believe the reason for this intercession was no doubt because Abram's nephew Lot was living in Sodom And Abram did not want to see his nephew destroyed along with all of those sinners. In fact, one of the first things out of Abram's mouth was, wilt thou destroy the righteous along with the wicked? In Abram's mind, his nephew was still righteous. He was still a a child of God, if you please. And Abram saw it that way and he said, God, surely this is not like you. This is not in your nature. As as holy as you may be, it's not in your nature to destroy the righteous along with the wicked. That's not the way you operate. Amen. And so Abram began his bargaining and his pleading. And he said, God, would you save these cities if you could find 50 righteous? And God said, yes, I will. And Abram said, what about 45? And God said, absolutely. And Abram said, how about 40? And God said, yes, I'll spare them for 40. Now, now, now listen, God knew how many were there. Abram didn't. But God did, and Abram was doing his best to just get the city spared. That's what he was trying to do. And so God said, yeah, I'll spare him for 40. And Abram dropped down to 30. He said, what about 30, God? Would you spare him for 30? And the Lord said, yes, I'll have mercy if I can find just 30 people there. And he said, what about 20? And God said, I'll give you that as well. And finally, Abram said, I've I've dared to go this far. Let me make one more step, God. Would you spare the city for just 10? And God said, if I can find 10 righteous people, People in that city, I won't destroy it. But remember, he'd already sent the angels ahead. God knew there weren't even 10 in that city. 
Abram didn't. And Abram left off his intercession at 10. Now there are those who say maybe Abram should have gone on to five. Maybe, you know, maybe he could have kept bargaining. But, and I don't know. This is conjecture. And I've always promised this church when it's a matter of my opinion, I'll tell you it's my opinion. And my opinion doesn't really count for a whole lot. And uh, so this is my opinion. But I believe there's a reason why Abram stopped at 10. I, I don't think it was just uh, a, a, a number that he had picked indiscriminately. I, I think he had this number in his mind because I think that Abram believed there were 10 that were in that city. Now follow with me. His nephew Lot was there. And Lot's wife was there. Maybe I should have Jaheim count these off like... We did the scriptures the other day. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now, we know, we know, if you're familiar with the story, we know that the men of the city were so wicked that they wanted to defile the very angels that had come to judge them. And, and Abram, I mean Lot, had them in his house and Lot instead offered his two daughters. And he said, I've got two daughters that have never known a man. And he offered them instead. So he's got two single daughters in his house. So where are we at now? Two plus two is four. Good job, all right. So now we've got four. Now we also know that when the angels began to tell Lot, who have you got in this city? You better go tell everybody that, that's connected to you, whether it's sons or daughters or whoever it is, you better go tell them that judgment's coming. And so he went and talked to his sons-in-law. He had two sons-in-law. So that's two more. So now... We are at six. Now, if he had two sons-in-law and he had two daughters that were not married, he must have also had two daughters that were married. It only makes sense to me if you got two sons-in-law, you got two married daughters. Does that make sense to everybody else? All right, add two more in there, and where are we at? We're at eight. We're at, yeah, eight, there you go. Somebody help in this. Yeah, yeah that's good. <laughs> I promise I won't make you take your shoes off and count with your toes. We'll get there, all right. All right, we're at eight. All right, so we can count eight. Now, I will say this. You, you can put your hand. I will say this. I will say this. There are those who say that the two unmarried daughters really were the only daughters that he had because you'll remember when it came time for Mary and Joseph, the whole espousal process uh, to those who lived in that time was considered a marriage. Though Mary and Joseph had not come together, uh, she was still considered his wife and, and so Joseph would have been considered the son-in-law of Mary's parents, right? Right? So that, that may 
possibly be the case, but that's conjecture. And so if we're gonna, if we're gonna offer conjecture, I can offer mine too. There's no way to prove one way or the other. We do know he had two daughters there in the house that were not at that time joined to a man. And we know he's got two sons-in-law. And so I just personally think, again, my opinion, but I think that he had two married daughters and two single daughters. Now, if he had two married daughters, is it not possible that he had at least two grandchildren? I mean, wouldn't it seem reasonable to you that it wouldn't be hard for Abram to think in his mind, there's 10 down there in my family. And so when he got to 10, he thought that's all I need. Lot and his family will give us the 10 we need. We can stop right here. The problem was there were those in Lot's family who did not accept the message of destruction and did not want to leave Sodom. And they mocked or they looked at Lot as one that mocked and they rejected his message and they stayed behind in Sodom. And so there were the two sons-in-law, perhaps the two daughters, perhaps the grandchildren that did not leave Sodom. Are you still with me? I told you it's going to be a bus. We're going to take a little time here getting where we're going. I don't know if you've ever traveled by bus, but it's the worst way to travel. It's the worst way. And I hope we don't have any bus drivers in here. I mean, I'm talking about Greyhound or whatever. But, but it's, it's just, it is a long, they stop at every little nook and cranny. I'll tell you what would be a four-hour trip turns into about ten. It's terrible. It's miserable. Um, but anyhow, that too is my opinion. If you like traveling by the bus, God bless you. Just don't give me a bus ticket as a gift. I will re-gift it, praise God. <laughs> hallelujah. Well, hallelujah. So, so, it's very possible that there were 10 in Lot's family, but some of those rejected the message. And, and then we find, we find that through the night, through the night, after, that night after, the men had tried to accost the angels. And Lot had tried to appeal to his son-in-law, sons-in-law. That next morning, that next morning, the angels gave stern and explicit instructions to Lot and his family. Read for me now. We're getting into the scripture now. Genesis chapter 19, verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Now, here's what he said. Take your wife and the two daughters that are here, which again kind of says to me, there are two daughters that rejected it. But again, my opinion. Take your wife, take the two daughters which are here, and get out of here because judgment's coming. And if you don't get out, you're going to be judged just like the rest of them. And yet in spite of this, and, and look, the Bible says that they hastened Lot. They were urgent with this message. They were doing their best to let him know you got to do something about this quickly. 
And yet look at his response in verse 16. And while he lingered. While he, wait, while he what? Lingered. Lingered. After everything he's endured the night before, he's still having a hard time getting out of Sodom. He's having a hard time leaving that wicked, sinful place. After everything he's been through and knowing that judgment is coming, he's struggling in his mind. He lingered. The men laid hold upon they laid his hand. Hold on his hand. And upon the hand of his and wife. On the hand of his wife. And upon the hand of his the two hand daughters. And of his two daughters. The Lord being the merciful Lord unto him. Being merciful unto him. And they brought him and forth. They brought him forth. And set him without the city. It sounds like they nearly had to drag him and his wife and his two daughters to get him out of there because judgment was coming. And there was a man that had interceded. And though God didn't ask, or Abram didn't ask God to spare Lot and his family, God knew the intent of that prayer. God understood the intent of the heart. Are you still with me? And so they, the Lord had mercy and he pulled them out of the city. Then once they got out of the city, the angels gave them further instructions. Read verse 17. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain lest thou be consumed. And so here are the instructions. The angel, when he got them out, when they got them out of the city of Sodom, the angel said, now run for your life. Get out of here. Get out of here as quick as you can. And let me tell you this, while you're going, don't look back. Whatever you do, don't look back. Leave that up a little, a few moments longer if you don't mind. L don't look back, he said. He said, look, you got to get out of here. Don't look behind you and don't stay where you are. Now they're telling him that, no doubt, because they've already had to drag him out of the city. They know that Lot's going to be dragging his feet. He's not going to want to get out of there. He doesn't want to leave. He, his heart is not really in this endeavor. And so they're telling him, you don't stay anywhere close to here. Get out of here. Get up into the mountain. Get as far away as you can. It's going to be bad. When judgment comes, it's going to be bad. And even though you're not in the city, if you stay too close, you're still going to be consumed. So get out of here. Escape for your life. And don't look So we won't take the time to read it, though you could. In fact, this is Bible study. So if you want your Bibles open to Genesis 19, that'd be a good thing. So, so we won't take the time to read it, but you can see where at that point, Lot still didn't get up and start running. He's, he's trying to bargain with these angels. You know, don't, don't, don't send me into the mountains. There might be wild beasts up there. There might be, I don't, I don't know what's up in the mountains. I, I don't, I don't want to go to the mountains. Look, look, there's a little city over here. Could, could I just go to that city and, 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 and I, I'll stay in that city if you just won't make me go to the mountains. And the angels, uh, look, I, I'm just telling you, I, this is me, but I believe if it had not been for a praying uncle, 
I don't think the angels would have put up with all this. I just don't. I don't think God would have put up with all this had it not been for a praying uncle. Well, hallelujah. Listen, you don't ever know the power of your prayers. You say, well, they just keep getting worse and they keep getting worse. And they keep... But I'm telling you, you don't know what your prayers are doing. You don't know the good your prayers are accomplishing. Well, praise God. So you keep on praying and keep trusting a merciful, compassionate, loving God. That's not my message, but thought I'd throw that in for free. And so he bargained with them. And again, they granted his request. Said, all right, all right, go to Zoar. We'll, we'll spare the city of Zoar, but, but, but go there. But get there because I can't do anything until you're settled in a place. And judgment is there. They're literally holding back the judgment of God until Lot settles somewhere. Now, I want you to watch this next part. So Lot and that family that went with him, his wife and his two daughters, fled to Zoar. And it was then that the Lord sent judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was then that Lot's wife turned back and looked. Read for me Genesis 19 verses 23 through 26. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom. Now, 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 now follow, follow what's being said here. The sun was risen on the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Then. When? When Lot entered into Zoar. So they're already in another town. And you remember the angels had given them their first instructions in the morning. When the sun had come up, the angels said, run for your life. And now it's morning again. They've traveled for a whole day. Perhaps even through the night to get to Zoar. But when the sun came up, and they were safely in Zoar. It was then that God rained fire and brimstone. Read. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. All right, now, now hang on. Before we read this next verse, have you ever seen drawings, paintings, whatever, of Lot and his family fleeing Sodom? And they're standing just right there at the city and there's fire behind them. Like they can feel the heat and they can smell the smoke. Oh no. No, no, it's another one of those traditions that's not at all scriptural. You can understand. Now, I want you to get the picture. They, they came out of Sodom one morning. The angel said, run for your life. They said, no, they bargained to go to another city. The next morning, they're in another city. And then God overthrew the cities of the plains and sent fire and brimstone. And then we get to verse 26. But his wife looked, his back, wife looked from back from behind him. And she became a pillar of salt. 
See, if she was standing just outside the city and fire and brimstones falling behind her, who wouldn't turn and look? But that's not where they were. They were safely ensconced in a new surrounding. They had a new opportunity. They had now left behind the sinfulness, the wickedness, the ungodliness of Sodom. And now we can make new friends. We can start a new life. We can, we, we can start all over again now and forget about everything that we've endured back there. Everything we had to put up with back there. We can forget all that. We've got a new day ahead of us. A new life ahead of us. But instead, Lot's wife, instead of looking forward, instead of getting her focus on what is now and what could be tomorrow, she had to look back at that sinful ungodly past she had to have one more glance just one more look at my past one more look at what's behind me I just can't let go of that I can't let go now Lot drug his feet but Lot didn't look back once he was out he was out and he didn't look back, but Lot's wife, Lot's wife just couldn't let go of the past. And what happened to her? She looked back from behind him and what? She became a pillar she of salt. She became a pillar of salt. A pillar. And you know, that word means exactly what it says. It's, it's not symbolic. It's, it literally means she became a pillar the word could be translated a column, a monument. In fact, some translations say statue. So it's not that all of a sudden she just dissolved into a pile of salt. She became a monument to everyone that looks back. A pillar, a column, standing upright. It's my contention that however tall Lot's wife was, the pillar was that tall. However big around she was, the pillar was that big around. It was Lot's wife. She was now a monument. She was now a statue, a column, a pillar of salt. Now, let me say this, and this is something I just learned. I didn't know this, and I was amazed to find this out. But as I got to looking at, at this and, and doing a little research, I was surprised to find that Josephus, Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, who was born... Uh, shortly after the death of Christ. He was born, they say, around 37 AD. All right, so not long after the birth of Christ, Josephus was born. Just want you to get a time frame. And he lived to somewhere around 100 AD. All right, some 63 years. 
um, died somewhere around 180. Somewhere between 37 AD and 180, Josephus wrote that he himself had physically seen this pillar still standing. Now this was thousands of years after it had happened. Josephus, now he's just one witness and who knows whether it's true or not, but that was his claim. But then you read on and you find a man by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus died about 100 years later, around 202 AD. Irenaeus wrote that the pillar still existed in his day. And then you go on and you read the writings of Tertullian who died around 220 AD. And he said the pillar was still standing in his day. Now that's three witnesses from that time period that say that column, that monument, that statue, that pillar was still standing. Get this, during the time of Christ. So when Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, I wonder how many of those who heard those words had walked past that pillar, had walked past that column, had seen that statue with their own eyes, and Jesus was just shaking them one more time and saying, look guys, whatever you do, don't look back. Let go of the past. Oh, I feel like preaching here today. Hallelujah. Let go of that past. She became a pillar. We could say, Brother Goff, she was paralyzed. She couldn't move. If she really became a statue, as some translations put it, then very possibly it could be as it was. Amen. In, in uh, 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 somebody help me here. In, in, oh, Jesus. We went there. We went there and saw them where... Pompeii, thank you. In Pompeii, it could be, if you've seen any of the statues of Pompeii where they were, you know, the bakers getting bread out of the oven and, and people are doing things. They're in the middle of action when, when the lava hit them. It could be that you could see the statue of Lot's wife turning to look back. She, though she might look back, she would never again go forward. She'd never again move. There was no future for her now. There was no new day for her now. There was no making new friends for her now. She was paralyzed because of her love for the past. Because she kept looking to the past. She couldn't move anymore. She couldn't respond anymore. She couldn't react anymore. She was paralyzed by her past. She became a pillar of salt. Here she was. Fresh new opportunity in front of her. 
surrounded in the past by a filthy population ungodly people whose lust consumed them day and night they knew no boundaries in the pursuit of their sensuality but now she's in a new town now she's got a new opportunity now she can go forward and get something done but instead she just keeps looking back she just keeps looking back and she's not gonna get anywhere as long as she's paralyzed by her past now I know some of you may be trying to prejudge where I'm going with this I'm asking you just hang on for a few minutes here's what I'm trying to tell you amen instead amen of looking ahead at a bright future amen she continued to look back at the gloom of her past and as a result was paralyzed by it too many times people whether they've been delivered or not delivered are so focused on their failures on their gloom on their misery on the ungodliness of their past on their haunting memories amen to allow them to recognize that God is giving you an opportunity to start brand new God is giving you an opportunity amen to go forward now you don't have to keep hanging on to what was behind you you don't have to be haunted by those memories anymore you've got an opportunity ahead of you for something new Don't be paralyzed by your past. Oh God, I feel like preaching. Saint or sinner, it doesn't matter. I can't tell you how many people, even within the church, some past hurt has kept them from really getting what they need from God because they just keep looking back at it. They just keep looking back. Well, so-and-so hurt me. Well, so-and-so did this. So-and-so did that. It doesn't matter how powerfully God moves in a service. It doesn't matter. There could be a prophet of God walk by and tell you things are going to be better. It doesn't matter. You've got a hold of that past so strongly that you can't see the future. I'm here to preach to somebody that today God sent a preacher your way to tell you you don't have to be paralyzed by your past. You don't have to live in the hurt of yesterday. You don't have to keep going on. Amen. Looking back at you. Well, they hurt me. They did this. They did no, no, no. You got a new future ahead of you. You got a bright day ahead of you. God wants to turn things around for you. Let go of that past as hard as it is, as difficult as it may be. Lot said, no, 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 no. But there's a merciful God trying to take you by the hand today and drag you out of that past so he can give you a hope for tomorrow. Hallelujah. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I really feel impressed to go here. And I, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to mess up my notes and the way I've got them organized, but 
Uh, nevertheless, I'm going to do what I feel, all right? <laughs> Let me tell you, I, I, I learned something this week. And this, this just, it's been an amazing week because the books I've read, the things, even text messages I've got, it's just almost like God just sent me one little building block at a time connected to this message because the Lord knew somebody that would be listening today, either here in person or online, really needed to hear what I'm trying to tell you right now. I learned this, I didn't know this, but I learned that in the human brain, in the human brain, there are two cell clusters, one on each side of the brain, uh, that make up what is called the amygdaloid complex. Now, the, each of these is called an amygdala. So the amygdaloid, amygdaloid complex is both of them together. But, but each of them, they don't have to be working together, each of them individually. Just this cluster of cells on either side of your brain, the amygdala, serves a function from all that doctors and scientists can tell. The, the amygdala, let me just read to you. This is what, this is the way it's defined uh, from a, I guess from a physician's standpoint is that each amygdala is responsible for assigning values to moments and turning them into memories. Assigning values to moments and turning them into memories. Let me, let me explain this to you. Many years ago, in fact, it was, it was, I had just been elected pastor for the first time, 24 years old, just been elected pastor for the first time. I was on my way to the church that I'd been elected to. We were driving, I don't remember where we'd been, but I was headed back home, driving through a city. A friend of mine from college was there, and I think we'd met up with them already, and then we were headed home, and I had my oldest daughter who was, uh, at that time, she was probably three, I guess, and Andrea, my middle-born, was just, she was only a few weeks old, I think six weeks old. Now, back then, it was before seat law, seat belt laws, and all of that. You understand? That, that wasn't a thing back in 1984. So, so we're driving down the road, and uh, we are, it's, it's raining, it's drizzling, and I pass, I'm, I'm, I'm on a main thoroughfare, but there's a side street that comes down from a hill, there's a hill that comes down, a stop sign at the bottom of the hill. Somebody had topped that hill, and the brakes evidently went out. Tires, I think, were bald. They came flying down that hill right through the stop sign and broadsided our car. My wife was sitting in the passenger seat up front. She was holding our newborn in her arms. My youngest daughter was in the back seat. Again, I don't think she was buckled. They didn't require, didn't have car seats back then to put them in. At least they didn't require them. It just wasn't a thing back then. I know that sounds abusive to some of you that have been raised with it, but that's, it, it was a different time back then. And, and so 
somebody broadsided us and spun I had a little, little bitty old Ford um, and, and they hit that thing and this was an old I don't know 1970 something that was solid steel and that Ford of mine I think it was a 1981 Ford it was mostly plastic and when steel and plastic meet you know which one loses and we lost and it hit hard and it spun the car around my wife's head hit the windshield she was thrown against the dash with that baby in her arms and the baby let out a scream and then just fell limp totally limp looked like she was lifeless my mind was whirling and all I could see was that car that hit us continuing down the road. Now, mine's not going anywhere. But I jumped out and took out on foot. Didn't make any sense, but adrenaline's pumping, you understand? Now, what I realized in a little while, they weren't trying to get away from the scene of the accident. It was just the impact, and the car was still moving from the impact. But I didn't know that. I mean, I, I'd lost my mind, and I thought my baby was dead. And I, I, I was trying to catch them. So you're not leaving here. You, we're going to find out what's going on. We're going to get medical attention for my wife and my other daughter. We're going we're to make sure you get prosecuted for what's going on. I'm, I'm just I'm out of my head in all of this. Now, now thankfully, my, it didn't kill my daughter, obviously. She's married and a pastor's wife now. Did break her arm, which the doctor said was very unusual for a six-week old baby because their bones are still pretty flexible. It takes a lot of impact to break the bone of, of a newborn. But it broke her arm. And, uh, and then with, it, with her being so young, they couldn't put it in a cast. They had to put a little sock on her arm and pin it to her nightgown and just let it hang there because everything's growing so fast at that time that the cast would have done damage. And, so anyhow, I, I said all that to say that for months, for months after that accident, every time I'd get in the car, my heart would race. Every time, Brother Hilton, that I'd come where there was an intersection, if another car was coming, I'd slam on the brake and look around. I, I, there, there was something in me. I couldn't help it. You understand? I couldn't help myself. You know what was going on? The amygdala in my brain had assigned a value to that moment and made it a painful memory and now every time I sat down behind the wheel of a car my amygdala was screaming you're going to get hit again somebody's going to run a stop sign again it's going to destroy you you don't want to do this my amygdala is doing its best to convince me not to take this step and can I tell you, had I listened to the voice of the amygdala, I'd have never driven again. But at some point, I had to push past it. I had to keep going. I had to quit looking back at the painful moment of what took place and say, no, 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 I've got too much to do. I've got a life ahead of me. I've got places to go. I've got things to accomplish. I can't live in this kind of fear. And I had to force myself to go beyond what my brain was screaming at me. That's what the amygdala does. Now, it can be a good thing. I mean, it's, 
You know, it's, it's the same thing that happens if you have pleasant memories of walking into grandma's house and smelling, you know, a pie or certain cookies. And, and then you go somewhere and you get a whiff that's just like that and your amygdala takes you back to grandma's house. That's what's going on. That's what I'm trying to explain. There's a, there is a physical, biological reason why we become paralyzed by our past. We have a bad experience. This is why, this is why, and I'm not trying to dig up anything that's going to be hurtful to anybody. I'm just trying to explain, but this is why some people have such trouble with relationships. Because they get into a relationship, it's abusive. It's terrible. And then every time they start to get into another one, their amygdala is telling them, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. And then everything that the other person says or does, they judge it based on what the amygdala is telling them. It's a biological response. We can't stop from coming. But what we can do is we can push through it. We can make up our mind. It doesn't matter what happened back there. Yeah, I may have been hurt by some saint before, but that doesn't mean I'm going to shut myself off and not be friendly to the rest of the saints. Yeah, I may have had a preacher hurt me one time, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to trust my life to the hands of a man of God. Come on, some I'm preaching to us today. We've got to be careful that we don't let that biological response start controlling our spiritual response. I'm here to preach to you today. You can get beyond what the amygdala is telling you. You can push past what your brain is screaming at you if you really want to. But you gotta have the desire. You gotta make up your mind. I'm not living back there. I'm tired of Sodom. I'm tired of what they did. They're not gonna keep controlling my life. I've seen people leave abusive relationships and the rest of their life, they're living in fear. And you know what's happening? The abuser is still controlling them. Oh, they left physically, but they never got free mentally, emotionally, psychologically. They never got free. And it carries over into the church. There are people who want to live for God, but they've convinced themselves, I look back at what I was. I look back at what I've done. Even those who would look back and say, you know what, I tried once and I failed. I tried twice and I failed. And, and, and every time I come back to church, it just keeps telling me, you're not going to make it this time either. You're not going to make it this time either. I understand those thoughts better today than I've ever understood them before. There is something going on in your mind that's telling you this. But it's not always true just because that voice is telling you that it's not necessarily the case there is a God who can take your past and put it as far from you as the east is from the west you don't have to be paralyzed by your past you can gain a brand new future I feel like 
preaching today. Ikaya tabo shatala bahaya. There's freedom, my friend. There's victory, my friend. You don't have to live being bound by all of that. Let me tell you, church, even the things that we've been through, if you're not careful, our amygdala can start acting up and saying, see, it's not going to happen. Revival's not really coming. We've been here before. We've done this before. Things fell apart before. People left before. Things have gone on before. And your amygdala just keeps talking and talking and talking. But at some point, you got to stand up and say, there's one thing my amygdala has not taken into consideration, and that's the God that created it. And he's able to change every circumstance. He can change the course of a river. He can pull down a mountain. He can turn the heart of a king there's nothing my god can't do it doesn't matter what my past is there's a future ahead because of the god that i choose to serve hallelujah 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 listen listen we got to understand. We got to understand. Amen. At some point, we got to quit looking back at the past. As much as our past may have hurt us, as much damage as may be back there, as much baggage as we may be carrying, we're never really going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. Until we unhitch that trailer and move on. Let me show you something here. Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 16 and 17. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is, which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. No man puts new cloth on an old garment. Now, now let me, again, let me make application here, not interpretation, but make application, all right? Are you with me? Application here. You can't sow the new birth onto your old past and expect it to be functional. No man puts a piece of new cloth on the old garment. That's what too many people try to do. I want the Holy Ghost. I want to be baptized in Jesus' name. I want to be a child of God, but I can't let go of this old garment I've been wearing ever since I was a child. My father abused me. My mother abused me. And, and I'm not making light of that. I, I promise you, I'm not... I'm not, I know it's painful, but I want to help somebody today. I want you to understand there is help beyond that. God knows how. God can't change past relationships. God can't go back and take away that man that ran you down, that maybe even physically 
beat you and yet called himself your husband. God is not going to take away that man. But what God can do is God can bring you to a place where you've got people who do love you. People who do care about you. People who do understand you. People that want to be there for you. I'm telling you, God knows how to pick you up out of Sodom and allow you to go to a new city, new surroundings, new friends, a new place. Forget the hurt. Forget the heartache. It's time for a new beginning just don't try to tie it to the old garment get rid of the old garment to the best of your ability it's not easy we're human we can't forget people say you're supposed to forgive and forget I want you to understand that is impossible for humanity We can't forget. And the more we tell ourselves to forget, the more we remember what we're trying to forget. We can't. Only God can forget. What we have to do is push beyond it. It's still going to be there. And those memories are still going to come up. But you've got to start putting something new in that amygdala. You got to start putting something new there and say, yeah, I understand. I know so-and-so was always hateful to me. I know when I came to church, I had, I had bad experience. But there's people here that have been friendly, people here that have been kind. There's people here that love me and care about me. You got to start replacing, amen, the old with the new. You can't have the two sewn together. And he reiterates it here in the very next verse, verse 17, Matthew 9, 17. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. You can't put the new wine of the Holy Ghost into the old bottle of your past. It just doesn't work. The new wine of the Holy Ghost is vibrant. It's alive. It's effervescent. Oh, hallelujah. And that old bottle of your past just can't take it. I'm telling you, it's time. It's time to lay all of that aside. Forget about all of that and move forward and let God do something brand new in your life. Oh, I feel this in my heart today. I feel this in my heart today. I'm trying to help somebody today. Listen, we gotta, we gotta move forward. Forget the past. Move forward the way Paul did. Put Philippians chapter three and, and, uh, verse number, uh, 12. I skipped around. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm having to repiece everything at this point. Uh, Philippians chapter three, verse 12. Read. Not as though I had already attained, right. either were already perfect, right. but I follow after. Listen to what Paul said. I got a past too. I got a past too. I got a bad past. You want to talk about somebody having to deal with some issues. Can you imagine being a one God apostolic preacher trying to save people? And all the while, you've got these haunting memories of how many of those very people you're now trying to save 
you put in prison and put to death and stood by and gleefully watched them die. Even if you didn't pick up a few rocks of your own, you were responsible. Now, these are the people you're trying to help. Can you imagine? But he said, I know I hadn't already attained. And I know I'm not perfect. But I'll tell you what I do. I'm following something else. Read. If that I may if apprehend. I can just that, apprehend. That for which also, for which also I am apprehended, apprehended of Christ Jesus. Read. Brethren, I count not I myself, count myself to have apprehended. To have apprehended. But this one thing I do. one thing I do. Forgetting those I'm things. Forgetting. Which are I got to forget it. I can't live there. It would drive me crazy. Every time I see somebody in the altar, I might, I might actually be preaching, Brother Hilton. I might be preaching to somebody that I put behind bars. That wasn't supposed to be behind bars. They were only there. Because they were living the way I'm now telling them they're supposed to live. And I see them in an altar weeping and praying. And my mind keeps screaming at me. You see that? You see that lash across his face? He got that while he was in prison because of you. Paul said, There's only one thing I can do. I got to forget those things that are behind. Read. And reaching forth and unto reach those forth things which are before. To something that's before. I press. I'm pressing. I'm pressing. It's not easy. Are you hearing me today? He didn't say it's an easy walk, but I'm pressing. For the mark. It's a fight every morning. Every day that I get up, I got to fight through this, but I'm going to keep fighting. I press toward the mark for the, for the prize of the high the calling of, of God, God in Christ Jesus. I got to let go of my past. I can't be paralyzed by my past. I've got a future ahead. God's got things for me to do. God's got things for me to accomplish. I can't judge everything in the light of what my past did to me. I've got a future ahead and I got to put it in the hands of God. He was well aware of his past. Read 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the came world into to, the save, world to sinners, save sinners of whom? of whom I am chief. I am chief. I admit I got a past, but I'm doing my best to just press through that and stay focused on the future because I want to do something for God. I want to be used of God. I can't go back and change what happened back there. I can only change what tomorrow holds. Luke 9 and verse 62. I'm trying to hurry here today. Luke 9, 62. Let me just explain this to you. You got it? Yes, sir. All right, read. And Jesus said unto him, Jesus said, No man, no having, man put, having put his hand, to, his the hand plow, to the plow and looking back, and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
You know, something hit me while I was driving down the road this week. We read that verse, no man, once you've put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. But something hit me, Brother Jaheem, that I had never thought about. These words came to my mind. There's a difference between unfit and unsaved. Just because you've looked back doesn't mean you're lost. That word unfit comes from a compound Greek word, two Greek words put together actually. The first one means well and the second one means to put down, to, to, to put into a, uh, a slot. You put them together, the, the word fit literally means well placed. Jesus said if you've, you're trying to plow but you're looking back, you're not well placed for the kingdom. You're not going to get anything really accomplished. Listen, I'm preaching to some people today. You're not lost. It's not a matter of the fact that you're lost or that there's no hope. The problem is you're trying to plow, but you just keep looking behind you. I'm going to tell you, any farmer that ever does that, you know how it is when you're driving. You, you turn try to look behind you, your hands generally follow where your eyes go. If you don't make a conscious effort to keep that steering wheel straight, you turn to look and your hands just go. Can I get a witness? You're plowing and you turn to look back. You're not plowing straight anymore. You're starting to curve. Jesus said, if you're going to plow in this kingdom, you're going to have to forget about yesterday and keep your eyes on what lies ahead. That's the only way you're really going to be productive. You got to get beyond the paralyzing pain of your past and get your eyes focused on a beautiful future. Would you give me just a few more minutes today? My wife sent me an article by text this week and she had no idea what I was mulling over in my mind or how any of this would fit. She just knew I'd be interested in the article because I used to read this author as a child. In fact, you go into my home office today and you'll still see just their collector's books. I haven't read them since I don't know when. Uh, it's been many, many years since I've read any of them. But, uh, but I, as a young boy, very, very, very uh, avid reader of, of this lady's books. And so my wife sent me this and I want to just read this to you. I added a few things to it after some further research. Listen to this, deeply hurt by the death of her mother. 35-year-old Agatha Christie was still trying to overcome her grief when her husband of 12 years suddenly announced he was in love with another woman and wanted a divorce. The twin shocks threw Agatha into a deep state of depression. Feeling that the best of her life was behind her. She saw little reason to go on living. It was only her concern for her seven-year-old daughter that saved her from suicide. 
Born into an affluent English family in 1890, Agatha Miller was a precocious child who taught herself to read at age four and quickly developed what would be a lifelong devotion to books. At 22, she met Archie Christie, a dashing young pilot. The couple fell in love and were married on Christmas Eve in 1914. They spent most of the next four years separated by World War I, settling afterwards in London. Their only child, Rosalind, was born in 1919. By the time her marriage to Archie fell apart, Agatha had published five well-received detective novels, but she could hardly have expected the success that awaited her. In time, Agatha began to recover from the pain of her failed marriage. She resumed writing and to boost her spirits, took a trip on the Orient Express. Then in 1930, a friend invited her to come along on a trip to an archeological dig in Iraq. There she met Max Malawan, a prominent archeologist 13 years her junior. They fell in love and were married later that year, a happy marriage that would last until Agatha's death 46 years later. At the end of 1926, Agatha Christie may have thought her life was no longer worth living, but she was entirely wrong about that. In the years that followed, she not only found the love of her life, but she also enjoyed her greatest success, becoming the best loved and most translated author on earth with over 70 best-selling novels, including one of the top-selling books of all time, which sold over 100 million copies. She also wrote the longest-running play in history, which ran continuously from 1952 to March of 2020, when it shut down only because of COVID-19. In 1955, she was the first recipient of the Mystery Writers of America's Grand Master Award. Her husband, Max, was knighted in 1968, and three years later, Agatha was named a Dame of the British Empire. Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller Christie Mallowan died at age 85 on January 12th, 1976, 46 years ago this week. But in 2013, 37 years after her death, she was voted the best crime writer and her book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, the best crime novel ever written by 600 professional novelists of the Crime Writers Association. With over 2 billion copies, billion with a B, copies sold, she is the best-selling novelist in history. If ever there was somebody that had a right to be paralyzed by their past, she did. But instead, she went on to achieve some of the greatest accomplishments ever known. I hope you're hearing me today. You are faced with a choice of still being bound to that past or saying there's something new 
and great ahead. It doesn't erase the pain. It doesn't take away the darkness. I know that. I'm not so naive as to think that you can simply make a decision here this morning and get up and walk out and never again be haunted by the clouds of what used to be. They'll still come around. But if you can have a determination that those clouds don't determine the weather for me personally, I'm gonna set my own thermostat. I'm gonna determine my own temperature. I am going to put my life into God's hands and let him take me somewhere and do something with me. You say, would he really do that? I'm closing with this. I've still got a few scriptures, but I am going to try to close with this. I want you to think for a moment. We've talked about Paul, but let's think about Peter. Peter, the one whom Jesus turned and looked at, and called him Satan because of his poor decision. That's Matthew 16, 23. We won't take the time to read it, but it's there. You can read in Matthew 26, verses 69 to 74, how that three times in one night, Peter denied the Lord. I'm talking about his past. He makes a bad decision, runs his mouth, and the Lord calls him Satan. Not long afterwards, he denies Jesus three times, having been forewarned it was going to happen. But he did it anyhow. And then, after Jesus' resurrection, the Lord shows up and asks him a question. Simon, do you love me? And I was going to read all this, but I'm trying to come to a close. Simon, do you love me? This is in John 21. And I've pointed out to this church, the word love there is the word agape. It is that sacrificial love. It is that self-denying love. Do you love me with agape love, Peter? And Peter looked back and said, Lord, you know that I love you. In the English, it's the same, but in the Greek, it's not. In the Greek, he said phileo. It's brotherly love. You want this sacrificial love? All I can commit to you right now is that I love you like a brother. The Lord asked him a second time, do you love me with agape love? And a second time, Peter said, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And so the third time, Jesus finally said, Peter, do you really loved me like a brother. And Peter was distraught. Some people say he was angry because the Lord kept asking. I don't think that's what's going on. I think he realized the Lord just lowered the standard because he couldn't commit to agape love. The Lord came down to his level and said, okay, Peter, do you really love me like a brother? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you like a brother. But do you know through the midst of all that, Jesus kept on telling him, there's a future, Peter. Feed my lambs. There's a future, Peter. Feed my sheep. Don't give up, Peter. Feed my sheep. What a past. What a thing to hang on to him. But I'm telling you, we get to the day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended into heaven.
Did you ever notice? Did you really pay attention to Acts 2.37? Read for me. Now when they heard this, when they, heard this they were pricked, they in, were their pricked heart in their heart and said, and they Peter said to Peter and to the rest and of the apostles. To the rest. Listen, the question wasn't just to Peter. They're asking all 12. They ask all 12. Now here's Peter standing here in the midst of this crowd. All of this past baggage behind him. I was called Satan by the Lord. I denied him three times. I couldn't commit to really loving him. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, he kept telling me, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And now's my moment. And so they said to Peter and to all of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? But it wasn't the other 11 that answered look at verse 38 then Peter, then said, unto Peter said unto them Repent. oh listen there's more going on here than we even realized at that moment Peter is stepping beyond that past that's paralyzed him he's stepping beyond the baggage he's carried with him he's stepping into a new future he's not the same old Simon he used to be he's a new man now and he's the one that answers. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, Repent and be baptized. And be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission for of sins. For the remission of sins. And you shall and receive shall the gift receive of the Holy Ghost. the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise, promise is unto, unto you and to, and your, to children, your children. And to and all, to that, all are that are far off. And even, even as, many as many as the Lord as our God the Lord shall call. Our God shall call. Now we usually stop right there but the Bible says something else after that verse 40 with many other, many words, other words did he testify and exhort did he testify and exhort saying save yourselves from this untoward generation now there's a lot in that simple statement of save yourselves there's a whole lot there and I'm not saying this is all of it in total I can't help but wonder, Brother Hilton, if maybe part of this save yourself was Peter realizing that's what he just had to do. I could have been sucked into the past just like Judas was. Judas went out and hanged himself. Judas couldn't let go of what was back there. Judas couldn't move forward. And Peter could have been the same way. But Peter said, no, no, no. I'm going to save myself. I'm getting out of this past. I'm going to declare a new beginning. And I'm telling you from that moment forward, there's no denial from Peter. There is no being called Satan. Amen. There's none of that that you read about before. He's a new man. Amen. You read in the next chapter. After him and John going to pray, take it. It's Peter that takes the man by the right hand and says, such as I have, give I unto thee. I'm telling you, this is a different man. Something's happened. Peter's not being paralyzed by his past. He's letting God give him a new future. Let's stand today. I'm preaching. I'm preaching to somebody. In fact, I'm preaching to several somebodies in this house today. I want you to understand. I want you to know. I want you to comprehend today. Amen. That you don't have to be paralyzed by whatever lies back there. God can give you a brand new beginning.
God can take care of it all. In order to truly save ourselves, we've got to press beyond the paralyzing power of the past. Now I know, I know what time it is. I've preached longer than I even imagined I would have the strength to. But I've made it through with the help of God. And I feel like I've delivered the mind of God. But I'm not entirely finished. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to this altar. I'm going to give you a chance to come and pray. But I want you to do something else besides just come and pray for a few moments and then get up and go home and have your thoughts of whether you think this was a good message, a bad message, or you're just indifferent. I got something I want to ask you to do. You see, the first step in breaking free from that paralyzation is, is to quit looking. You got to let go of it. You got to just make yourself. You got to cast down imaginations. You got to gird up the loins of your mind. You, you, you got to take control when those things come back and start to haunt you again. You, you can't let yourself be carried downstream. You got to get a hold of it. Quit looking back. But there's another step. We still got one more scripture to read, Brother Goff. One last scripture to read. Give me just a few more minutes. Proverbs 29, verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the now, law, go ahead. happy is happy he. Now, now, now listen, I've done my best to try to keep my vision for this church in front of you. And I talked about it a few minutes ago. If we're not careful, we'll let haunting memories keep us from seeing that vision come to pass. And that's why I try to just keep the vision in front of you. That's why that sign's out there when you walk in is to remind you that day's coming again. We're, we're, we're going to get there. We're, we're going to build. It's going to happen. In spite of COVID, in spite of everything else, we're going to get there. It's going to happen. I want to keep that vision in front of you. But I want to tell you, without a vision, the people perish. It's true for churches. There has to be a vision. And as the pastor, I have to be the visionary. And I've got to cast that vision. You've got to catch that vision. But something else needs to happen, saints. Besides just catching the vision of the church. Because the church is made up of individuals. Are you hearing me? The church is made up of individuals. And you have to have a vision for how you fit in to the church vision. You've got to see where you belong and how you fit. You need to cast a vision for yourself or if it's a family for your family. For your spouse, together, the two of you. 
There's got to be some individual vision, not just jumping on board. Mine for the church as a whole will never get there if you don't have a vision for how you fit in. Did you get those cards? I, I, I'm, I'm just go ahead and play, but I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you down around the front, but then I'm going to have these index cards sitting out before you leave this morning in fact I don't want you to even walk away from the altar area until you've picked up an index card and at the top of that card I want you to write my personal vision for 2022 my personal vision for 2022 if you're the head of a household or couple together get, get a, a second card and make it my family vision for 2022 those of you listening online grab a piece of paper do something Let, let's participate in this we're going to pray but I don't want it to be just to pray to get this message off our heart and then move on and come back tonight I want us to walk out of here with a purpose I want us to walk out of here, Brother Goff, with a vision, a personal vision. Here's what I want to accomplish for the kingdom of God this year. Here's what I want to do for the kingdom this year. Here's what I want my family to do for the kingdom this year year and once you've got it written down I want you to take it put it somewhere prominent keep it somewhere you're going to see it I want you to see it throughout this year I want you to be reminded this is what I'm working towards faith without works is dead I'm going to do what I can to make this vision become a reality are you with me today I want us to gather in. I want us to find a place to pray. Give me just a few moments. I know I'm over time, but give me just a few moments today. Spend a few moments praying, asking God for direction, asking God for the vision for your life. And then I want you to take a card and write on it what that vision is. Write on it what that vision is. This is what I believe God wants me to do for Him in this year. Oh, let's talk to the Lord. Let's talk to the Lord.